The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Church, would you remain standing as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people come are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord, Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, please help us. All throughout your word, you compare us to sheep. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are helpless. But worse than sheep, we're also selfish. Worse than sheep, we often think that we can take control, that we should be leading the, the rest of the flock, that we have all the answers, that we have a justification in going around you, claiming rights that you've never extended to us in your word, demanding that you fit in with our schedules and our plans and our wills and our desires. So, Father, we come to you this morning as your people, a people in desperate need of humbling, people in desperate need of being reminded that you are God and we are not. And from that place, a people in desperate need of seeing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, finding in him our only hope, our only rescue, our only desire. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, to help us to think right thoughts in the moments to come, the 
that we might see him. We might come to him. That we might endure as we walk with him. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we return this morning to the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. As you'll recall, Jesus is seated upon the Mount of Olives, and he's there with his inner circle, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he's just told these men that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's an act of vindication. It's an act of judgment upon those who rejected Jesus as their king and Messiah. It's a validation that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. As assurance, as an affirmation that Jesus has, in fact, ascended to the right hand of his father and that there he has all power and authority and dominion without end. So to show all of this, the temple, the very centerpiece of the Jewish religion, it would be torn down, not one stone left sitting upon another. Now the disciples, they seem to recognize the significance of this event. No longer would men come to God through temples, through sacrifices, through priests, but they would, they would only come in the true temple, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Dear children, I pray that your mind has made that shift as well. Christianity is all about a person. It's not about rules. It's not about traditions. It's not about just trying to avoid bad things and seeking to do good things. It's about a person, about the person of Jesus Christ. It's about all that he has done. It's about all that he is doing. It's about all that he has promised that he will do. It's all about the person. He is everything that you need. He's everything that you are created to enjoy. He was your only hope in all the universe. Everything that God created you to enjoy, to long for, to strive towards, it is all found in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. A little boy falls in love with a little girl. He might rightly say that she becomes his whole world. Dear friends, Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Master, he truly is our everything. Again, I say he's our only hope. He's our ultimate reward. To be with Jesus Christ is to be truly satisfied, to find true happiness, eternal blessings. These men, they seem to grasp this. They had abandoned everything to be with Jesus. They believed the words that he had said to them, that they were going to Jerusalem and that there he would die, that three days later he would rise again, and then ultimately he will ascend to be with the Father. But what then will they be left with? If this temple is going to be thrown down, if Jesus is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he's promised that he would not abandon them. A bit later, he will tell them that he will be with them even unto the very end of the age. But if this temple, this place where God once dwelled with his people, and then his son, Jesus Christ, God coming to dwell with his people, if these would both be taken away, what then would they be left with? They only knew of these two ways where man can be with God. And so to them, it had to surely feel like Jesus was leaving them as orphans. They had no concept of the reality that Jesus would be with them, that God would come, even better than this, that God would come to dwell within them, that by the work of the Spirit, that Jesus Christ would be with them even at the very end of the age. And so their minds, they immediately go, when they understand that this temple is going to be destroyed, that Jesus is going to ascend to be with the Father, their mind immediately goes to this thought that surely this must mean that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent, that immediately Jesus Christ must come back. That's why we find in Matthew's gospel that the disciples ask the question like this. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, they had no clue. They had no clue that there would be 2,000 years and counting from the fall of Herod's temple to the return of Jesus Christ. So they asked as if both events were going to happen simultaneously. Again, they ask, how will we know that the time is near? What will be the sign that you are coming? 
Now, we spent our last five Sunday mornings together examining what Jesus said in response to this question. As I've told you, there's any number of ways to interpret. There's any number of ways that good and faithful and saintly men have come to understand what it is that Jesus Christ says in response to this question. But in short, the question that we must all ask ourselves is this. What portion of Jesus' teaching here in the Olivet Discourse points backwards towards the destruction of the temple? And what portion of his teaching points forward to his ultimate return? As I've aimed to show you, as I've aimed to put before you clearly, I believe that everything that Jesus has said up to this morning's text points back to the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. That that is the primary concern with everything we have read up to this point. Now, as you know, most every prophecy has layers to its fulfillment. And certainly in what we see in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, certainly there we see pictures of what we will see at the end of the age. We see pictures of what we will see when Jesus Christ returns. But again, I say, I believe that what Jesus is primarily concerned with here is the fall of the temple. I believe that we can take his words quite literally in verse 30 where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That he's saying that the majority of the people that are alive at the time of Jesus' teaching will still be alive to see the fulfillment of everything that he said up to that point. And so Jesus tells them, yes, there will be a sign. Something or someone called the abomination of desolation. This would have been something or someone that the first century Jewish believer would have immediately recognized. They would have known immediately in that moment that this was the one that Jesus had told them about. I believe that it was General Titus who led the Roman army into Jerusalem who would lead to the ultimate desecration of the temple. But whatever it was, there was going to be this sign. And when it came upon them, they would know that they were to flee to the mountains. Don't even go back into your house to gather your coat. Pray that this does not come on a Sabbath or in the winter. Pray that you are not pregnant or nursing. When you see this thing, you must run. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be. Jesus uses Old Testament cataclysmic language to explain what they would see on that day. The sun and moon going dark, stars falling from the sky, the heavens shaking. It's as if the whole world has been turned upside down. I would encourage you to go back, if you've not already, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those last few sermons. They help set the stage for everything that's built up to this point. But what historians tell us is that as, as a result of Jesus' warning, as a result of the first century church heeding his warning, that while more than a million Jews fell in the siege of Jerusalem, not a single Christian or almost no Christians fell, almost no Christians perished as a result of this because they listened to the warning of Jesus. Because Jesus was preserving his church. He was making certain that they could continue in that work of taking his gospels to the ends of the earth. In addition to that, he was making certain that his people were not punished, that his people did not fall under the same judgment as those that had rejected him as Messiah and King. So this morning, we come to what I believe is Jesus' shift. He has now finally shifted from talking about the destruction which has already come, the fall of the temple in 70 AD. He's shifting for the first time now to talk about his coming and the end of the age that he's now answering the second half of the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So I ask you to stand to your feet now in the reverence to reading of God's word. We, of course, return to Mark 13. We're going to begin in verse 32. This is the word of God. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, 
each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, help us to rightly receive your word. Do the supernatural thing that only you can do, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. For we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So verse 32 began like this. But concerning that day and that hour. I'll tell you that I believe that conjunction, but, it matters here. The Greek word is day. It can mean but or now or and. But in almost every major translation, you find that it's translated as, but. This is a mark of contrast. This is a change in focus. Jesus says, I've given you a sign. Because you will be alive whenever the temple falls, I've given you a sign that you may know when that day comes. But concerning that day and that hour. Again, I say it looks to me like a change in focus. I would also have you take note of the word or the phrase, that day. Now, I'm not going to bore you by trying to break down the Greek, and frankly, I'm in way over my head, even as is. But I think we can even just look to the English and have some understanding of what Jesus is doing here. Take note of that phrase, that day. But concerning that day. That's a singular demonstrative with a noun behind it. That day. Now, if you'll look over on the opposite page, or perhaps a little bit up on your page, to verse 17. Verse 17, he says this. He's speaking about the abomination of desolation. He says there, and alas... For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Do you see that? That's in the plural now. Those days. Now look down a little bit to verse 19. You see the same thing. Those days. Skip down a little bit or perhaps to the opposite page in verse 24. He's talking there about the son of man coming in clouds to receive his throne. He says this. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and all the rest. So do you see the pattern? Those days. Those days, those days. And then when he gets to verse 32, he says, but concerning that day. This seems to be a clear shift. I don't know if we need to get caught up in the fact that we're moving from plural to singular. I don't know if that's the key. Perhaps it is because the siege of Jerusalem lasted some five months while the return of Jesus Christ will be in an instant, like a flash of lightning in a single day. But I I believe just the shift in and of itself shows us something about Jesus' mindset. So there's something about, he's, he's setting a new stage for us now. He's saying, I'm no longer talking about those days. I've shifted now to talk about that day. That for the first time in all of his teaching, he has now shifted to talking about his return. Again, a shift that I don't believe he's made previous to this. Now, if you allow me to go a little bit deeper over my head, I've got one more grammatical hint that I think helps us to make this point. You're going to have to think with me here, but I think it's worth it. It's Frankly, this is what makes it so difficult to look back to prophetic teaching and gospels that were written almost 2,000 years ago in a different language. It makes, it makes it difficult, but I believe it's worth it. You see, if you look in Matthew's parallel, Matthew 24, you'll remember that it's there that the disciples ask the question that so clearly shows that they believe that the coming of Jesus comes immediately with the destruction of the temple. And in Matthew's gospel, verse 24 and 3, chapter 24 and verse 3, the disciples ask the question, what will be the sign of your coming? The Greek word there for coming is parousia. That's a word that many of you know. This word parousia means presence or advent or coming. 
Very often, whenever people talk about the coming or the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ, they use this word, parousia. It doesn't have to mean the return of Jesus Christ. This is the same word that Paul used when he talked about Titus coming to him. It can mean that, but very often, when you find this word parousia, or whenever you find people trying to talk about Greek, like me that don't know Greek, but trying to talk about Greek to sound smart, they'll use this word parousia as an indication of Jesus' second coming. Now, there's a couple of other words that are often used with regards to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll be familiar with these as well. One of those is epiphania. It's where we get our word epiphany from. It's where we get the word, it's translated as appearing. So we'll see Paul using both of these words together, parousia and epiphany. They come together in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, where he says that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance, that's the epiphany, of his coming, that's his parousia. There's one other word that is often used with regards to the coming of Jesus Christ, and that's apocalypsis. Want to guess what word we get from that? It's apocalypse. It means to reveal or to uncover. Again, we see Paul using this word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the Lord Jesus is revealed. That's apocalypsis. So we've got these three words, parousia, apocalypse, epiphany, all used with regards to the return of Jesus Christ. But what we find here at the beginning when the men ask the question of Jesus, in verse 3 of chapter 24, Matthew, they use the word parousia. However, whenever you come down a bit and you see Jesus talking about the coming of the Son of Man, the Son of Man coming in clouds to receive his throne and power and authority and, and dominion, just pointing back to the book of Daniel, what we find the word used there for coming is not parousia. It's not apocalypse. It's not epiphany. It's the word erkomai. It's a much more common Greek word that's used for coming. It can also mean to arrive. We talked about this two weeks ago whenever we came to that text. They use a much more common word, erkomai. But if Jesus was answering their question about the coming of Jesus Christ as the parousia, why wouldn't he use that same word? Or even one of these other less common words that are often used with regards to the return of Jesus Christ. Again, I think there's significance here. But then when we come to this morning's text, to Matthew's parallel to this morning's text, again in Matthew 24, verse 37, he says... That for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, the parousia. He's back to that word. The people ask, what about the parousia? What about your coming? What about your return? He talks about some other stuff in the middle, and he talks about his coming as his erkomai. But now we get back to this new section, and he's talking again about his parousia. Again, I think this is a clear shift. Jesus has shifted. They have asked about his coming. He's talked about the destruction of the temple, and now finally he's talking about his coming. But here's the good news. Even if I've lost you in all that, even if I've lost myself in all that, even if I'm completely wrong about all that, people almost universally agree that what we're now finally talking about is the return of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't buy into any of what I've just spent the last five weeks telling you, even if you think that I'm completely off my rocker with regards to what Jesus is teaching, we can all now get on the same page. We can all get on the same path. It seems clear to almost everyone that Jesus is now talking about his return. So, verse 32, but concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows. That's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? It couldn't be more clear than this. No one knows. It's very similar to a statement that Jesus made in Acts right before his ascension. His disciples are asking him if at this time he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. In Acts 1, verse 7, we read this. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, look, there's some things that the Father wants you to know. You're going to know those things. 
There's some things the Father doesn't want you to know. You're not going to know those things. Don't allow the things you don't know to get you all wrapped up. Don't allow the things that you don't know to distract you from the purpose that I've left you here, and that's to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we do, isn't it? We get all wrapped up in the things that God hasn't revealed. We get all wrapped up in the things that we don't know, and we forget to do the things that he's laid before us. We forget to fulfill our straightforward purpose as revealed to us in his word. It's what so many foolish little men do. They devote entire ministries to determining the day, sometimes the time, that Jesus Christ is coming back. The fact that they could get so caught up in such a thing, that they could literally waste their lives chasing after such a thing, in light of Jesus' clear teaching right here, it really is mind-boggling. Now look, I know why Harold Camping acted the way he did. I know why he continued to proclaim that Jesus was coming back on this date, and then whenever he didn't come back, he said, well, I forgot to carry the one, now he's coming back on this date, because there was money and fame at stake. What's more troubling to me is that so many people followed after him. What did Jesus say? He said, watch out that you are not led astray. I have to believe that these are the exact kind of people that he's saying, don't let them lead you astray. Don't let them distract you from what you know. Don't let them distract you from your purpose. Don't let them distract you from your mission. Don't let them lead you astray. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Will you just listen and believe me today when I tell you no one knows? It doesn't matter how big their whiteboard. It doesn't matter how many different colors of markers. It doesn't matter how many viewers they have on YouTube. They don't know. If they tell you they know, they're either fools or liars. They don't know the day. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, this is where the passage gets challenging. No one knows the day or hour of Jesus coming. It makes perfect sense with regards to mankind. Again, I say despite all the silliness, it makes sense to us that nobody knows. I can promise you when he's not coming back, probably, the next date that some jerk throws out there and tells you this is it. If people would stop predicting it, maybe he'd come back. He said, I'm not coming back when y'all keep telling me I'm coming back. It makes sense to us that he wouldn't reveal this thing to mankind, but he's not just talking about mankind here, is he? He says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And boy, has this verse ever caused some consternation over the years. But I tell you this morning that if there has ever been evidence for the authenticity, the veracity of the word that we hold in our hands this morning, it is this. Think about it. Think about it. What's the purpose of the Gospels? I'm going to allow John to tell us the purpose for his gospel and allow us to generally speak to all of them. John says, John 20, verse 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the most general terms, the gospels were written so that men might see Jesus Christ and hear his teaching and hear about his works that they may come to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by coming to him, they may gain eternal life. Now, if I was going to make up a story to cause you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, would I dare include a story that has him not knowing something? And if the ultimate hope of the Christian life is the physical, personal return of Jesus Christ, would I dare have him confessing, I don't know when I'm coming back? Of course not. Not unless it was true. Not unless he really said it. Not unless I have an absolute commitment to the truth. And not unless I have no fear whatsoever that anything in the person of Jesus Christ or in any of his words gives any indication that he is anyone other than exactly who he says he is. 
No man would include these words if they were merely the words of men. If you're trying to make a case for the person of Jesus Christ as the son of God. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So what do we make of this? Well, firstly, firstly, with regards to the angels, we're reminded that angels are not God. The angels in heaven are created beings. No matter what you may have previously believed, angels are not the souls of dead Christians. Angels are beings that were created by God somewhere before the end of the sixth day, it would appear to me. They are powerful and holy messengers of God. Now, Jesus makes reference here to the angels in heaven. I believe that's to differentiate them from the fallen angels. Satan and his demons, those once holy angels who had rebelled against God and therefore were cast out of heaven. Of course, it makes sense that God would not provide them unfettered access to his plans. But he doesn't just talk about those. He talks about the angels in heaven, those sinless angels, those absolutely perfect creatures in heaven that submit absolutely to the authority of Jesus Christ, live in absolute perfect submission to God. Even they don't know this, the hour, the day of Jesus' return. This shows us that there is still great separation. There is always separation from even the angels and God in their creatureliness. There will always be separation between the creatures and the creator. We see this in Isaiah 6. As Isaiah is given this vision and he sees there the seraphim as they're flying around the throne. With two wings they cover their face. With two wings they cover their feet. It's showing this recognition of their creatureliness. That we are not God. That you are God and we are not. Even in our perfection. Even in our holiness. Even in our absolute submission, there is always separation between the creator and the creature. And so clearly this truth is not something that God desired for his angels to know. It was not something that they needed to know to carry out their service to his kingdom. But again, Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say humanity. He doesn't just say the heavenly host. What does he say? Not even the son. This would appear to be a reference to Jesus not as the son of man, but as the son of God. That's the way the son is most generally used. You remember the way that Mark began his gospel. Mark 1.1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. What does it mean to be the son of God? What does it mean for him to be God's son? I think we see a hint of this in the way that John began his gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ, the son of God, he is that word. This word who has always been with God. That is to say he is a distinct and separate person from the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, he is this Son, he is this Word. He has always been with God. But he has also always been God. That is to say everything that makes the Father the Father. Just as the Father is God, Jesus the Son is God. We don't have anything like this in all creation. Don't nod your heads like you understand it. There's nothing like this in all the universe. Two persons with the very same essence and being and nature. I need you to know that I wrote a whole sermon this week and then hit delete. Deleted the whole thing on, when was it, Friday night? I spent a whole week writing a sermon. I looked at it and said, nope, that's not going to do. And I deleted it. And the reason I did this was not because I have some pride of ownership in this, not because I believe that I had it somehow figured out, because I trembled at the thought of misspeaking about this. I trembled at the thought of coming before you people and somehow giving you the impression that I had it all figured out. I trembled at the thought of coming before you and acting like this is something simple that you all should grasp. It's not. The idea that in two people, 
Let me just add to it. In three people, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we see this oneness of being, of essence, of nature. Again, I said there's nothing like it in all the world. It should cause your head to hurt. It should cause your eyes to water up. It should cause you to lose some sleep at night, wondering how can this be? Any man that comes before you on a Sunday morning and tells you he's got it figured out, any man that comes before you and offers some kind of analogies from this earth and says that this is surely what the triune God is like, they're not right. There is nothing like this in all the universe. We see evidence of this all throughout the New Testament. As we see words, we, we see language that can only be used of God being used of Jesus. We see phrases. We see terms. We see work in the life of Jesus Christ that can only be used when speaking of God. Even if we eliminate just the things that he said about himself, and there are many, the seven I am's, a clear reference to Yahweh, I am. By the way, you want to know how other God is? Whenever he identifies himself by name, he says, I am. There's nothing you can compare me to. You notice that every time we come to the great definitions of church history, it's basically a list of things that God is not. We're incapable of identifying all that he is, and so let's just eliminate all the things that he's not. That's how other he is. That's how magnificent he is. That's how impossible it is to grasp with our finite minds who this God is. And yet Jesus identifies himself by that name, I am. He identifies himself as the one that can forgive sins. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said, I and the Father am one. But eliminate everything that Jesus said about himself. Just look at some of the things that others said about him. Again, back to John's gospel, John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Go out on the streets right now and ask people, what do you believe about God? If there is a God, what do you believe about God? And number one on most everybody's list will be, he's the one that made everything. That's a general consensus. They might pull in some traits that God is love, that God is just, that God is holy. But ultimately, what does God do? God made stuff. In fact, God made everything that is. So if I wanted to make it clear to you that Jesus is God, I'd say this. Colossians 1, 16 to 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This could be no one else but God. Who is before all things? Only God. Who has the power to create all things? Only God. Who has the ability to sustain and hold all things together? Only God. And we see evidence of this in the work of Jesus all throughout his life. We see evidence of this divine nature, the truth that Jesus is God. It's on display all throughout his life. We see it in Jesus' ability to heal sick people, like Peter's mother with a great fever. We see it in Jesus' ability to walk on water and calm storms. We see it in Jesus' ability to cast out demons. We see it in Jesus' ability to raise dead men like his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, I will concede to you that there are times throughout Scripture where we see the men of God, both in the Old Testament and in the book of Acts, men of God doing mighty works, men of God carrying out miracles. But I would remind you that these prophets in the Old Testament, these kings in the Old Testament, they always did it in the name of God. They always did it to point other people towards God. That the apostles, they went out in the name of Jesus Christ. They went out to point others towards him to prove that they had come in his name, filled with his spirit. But only Jesus had the ability to do these things in his own name. Only Jesus had these abilities in himself. And only Jesus did these in such a way that pointed men back to him. Again, all throughout Mark's gospel, what have I told you the purpose of the miracles is? 
Of course they're driven by compassion. Of course they're driven by love. But ultimately, they're to prove to people, I am who I say I am. And the things that I say, you can hold them as gospel truth. The demons seem to recognize this. You see, the demons didn't fall down before other men as they came and cast them out like this. And yet the demons, think about the man in the garrisons. He had many demons within him. Before Jesus even did a thing to cast them out, they said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demons knew. But not only did demons know, men came to know. We see Peter saying, surely you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The same conclusion. We see it with Thomas as he cries out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus gladly receives this worship because Jesus is God. Because he has always been God. Only God is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of this praise. And Jesus gladly received it because he has always been God. Anything we say about God, anything we say about the nature of God the Father, we can and must say about God the Son. Everything that makes God, God is present in God the Son, is present in Jesus Christ. Everything that we've been studying on the last six months on Wednesday nights, everything, we, everything we've talked about as we've tried to grapple with who is this God, it all applies to Christ. This is why we read in Colossians 2.9 that for in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. I don't know why he added the word whole. That seems re repetitive, doesn't it? The whole fullness. Everything that it is that makes God, God, it dwells in Jesus Christ. And this includes all knowledge. This includes knowledge of everything that is. There is nothing that God the Son does not know. All knowledge comes from him, and he is not merely some great observer. As a commentator, many commentators have said, God the Son knows fully, completely, and eternally all things, both actual and possible, in one simple act. So go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Psalms. Read all the great words about the wisdom, about the knowledge of God. These things all apply to God the Son. Psalm 147, 4 through 5. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. I need you to please understand what I'm saying here. In his divinity, Jesus Christ does not merely have more and higher and greater thoughts than you. Jesus Christ has a way of knowing that is completely unique. Jesus Christ has a relationship with knowledge that is completely unlike the way you deal with knowledge. He is not learning. He learns nothing. He observes to find out nothing because all knowledge comes from him. It has always been his. He's not looking forward in the future. It's not as if Jesus was in eternity past and he looked forward in the future to learn things. All knowledge comes from him. All truth comes from him. A thing is only true if it aligns with him. So he's not the great observer. He's not the great learner. He's not the great studier. He is the source of all knowledge. All knowledge finds its source and its origin in him. Another quote, Antonius Thysius, he was a Dutch reformer in the 16th century. He says this. I don't even know if I can understand this. Like, I know I can't understand this, but I don't even understand what this dude's trying to say, but he sounds really smart, so I'm going to say it to you, and I pray one of you will get it and come explain it to me after, okay? He says this. God exercises knowledge in a simple, single, immutable, that's unchangeable, Simple, single, immutable, infinite, and eternal act. That is, he knows all things always, immediately, and at once, and necessarily. 
He knows everything in such a way that he is unaware of nothing. He has to learn nothing. He does not advance in knowing anything. He does not err. He supposes nothing. He forgets nothing. And he does not remind himself of anything. This isn't the smart kid in school. This isn't Albert Einstein. This isn't somebody with a photographic memory. This is the source of all knowledge. God himself, the son, Jesus Christ. Again, I would tell you, if you're not attending our Wednesday night meetings, and if it's at all possible, I would encourage you to do this. We leave here every week just realizing how gigantic God is and how tiny we are. We've never yet answered a question in here, just FYI. We've never yet solved a puzzle in here. We come and we stand in awe, looking at the God of the universe, and it will make you feel real small, real quick, and that's just where he wants you. But this is Jesus. But if all that we've just said is true, if Jesus really is God, if God really does have knowledge of all things and needs to learn nothing, how then can he say that he doesn't know this, the day and hour of his return? This is, of course, because he is fully man. Back to John's gospel, it says that the word became flesh. The word became is key there. He has not always been flesh. This is a thing that happened at the time appointed by God, the incarnation. Just as God had decreed from eternity past that the time would come when the son would be born of a woman. This would be a work of the spirit, not of flesh. There would be no earthly father involved. That Jesus would take upon himself the fullness of humanity. As just as the angel Gabriel had promised Mary, the virgin Mary, in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit would come over her. That within her would come this one that had been promised from so far past. That God the Father would send God the Son by the work of God the Holy Spirit. They would see the Trinity all at work in the sending of his Son. As the Son would then come in complete submission to the Father and taking the fullness of humanity onto himself. You need to understand this is not the creation of a new person. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity taking upon himself a human nature. The one who has always been. The one who has always been God, becoming something that he was not, taking upon himself humanity, all of humanity. Just as Jesus has within him everything that it means to be God, he now has within him everything that it means to be man, with the singular exception of sin. That is probably, perhaps, why Joseph was not involved. This would be a work of the Spirit, the Spirit which brings life and not of the flesh, which brings sin and death. So Paul speaks of it like this, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 7. He speaks of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ emptied himself. Some men have mistakenly take this to, be, take this to mean that Jesus somehow emptied himself of some of his deity, that Jesus somehow lost some of his godness in order to come to earth. But this isn't a thing which can happen. God is immutable. That is, God cannot change. That's what it means to be the infinite and eternal God of the universe. For God to decrease would mean he's no longer infinite. To God to increase would mean he wasn't previously infinite. The infinite God does not change. He does not grow in his deity. He does not shrink in his deity. If Jesus truly is God, he cannot lose any of what makes him God. That's what it means to be God. God neither grows nor shrinks. He neither increases nor decreases. He always is just as he is. And if I was going to explain that to someone... If I was going to explain that to human people, listen, we're always either getting better or getting worse, getting fatter or getting skinnier, getting smarter or getting dumber, getting older, never younger, always changing. 
But if I wanted to express to you that Jesus was the immutable God, wouldn't I say something like this? Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God cannot change. In addition to this, what did Paul say back in Colossians 2? Colossians 2, 9, he said, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Paul wouldn't say in one place, Jesus is full of deity. The fullness of what it means to be God can be found in Jesus. Oh, but he emptied himself. Oh, but he let, let loose of some of his godness. That can't be a thing that happens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, never stopped being God. He never lost any of godness. He never stopped being what he has always been. But in taking upon himself that which he was not, and taking upon himself the fullness of humanity, there was an emptying, a condescending, a humiliation, and refusing to live and act and speak in any way that's not given to him by the Father, and living in complete dependence upon the Spirit, and no longer appearing to man as his glorious self, no longer appearing to man as the glorious God of the universe, looking at him as nothing other than a humble servant, coming as a poor man, low and humble, not admired, not esteemed, not looked upon with the glory, the worship, the praise that he deserved, that it would only be to those to whom he revealed himself as he pulled back the veil to his flesh. It would only be to those who he gave eyes to see that could come to recognize the glory that is, is, that is in Christ Jesus. It's only those that he's revealed himself to that would see the glory of God in Christ. To everyone else, he would look like nothing more than just a man. But he didn't just look like a man, he was a man. In his humanity, Jesus Christ is everything that you are as a man, save and accept sin. All the limits that come upon you in your humanity, we see those. Man can't go forever without sleeping. So when Jesus was tired in a boat, he went to sleep. Until his friends woke him up because there was a storm and he went, shh, and the storm stopped. Man can't go forever without eating. And so after he had been teaching for a bunch of hours, he told his friends to go get him some lunch. But there's only a boy with two fish and five loaves. So Jesus created from that enough to feed thousands. See, man can only be in one place at one time. So whenever Jesus wanted to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he had to get in a boat. Except the time he didn't because he walked across the water. But when he walked across the water, he walked on human feet. <laughs> Don't tell me you got him figured out. This is, a tra this is the challenge. This is the struggle. This is the difficulty we have with this one who we call Lord. There's never been one like him. There will never be one like him. It isn't just that he is God in a human body. It's the uniting of God, all that it means to be God, with the fullness of humanity, a fully human mind, fully human will, fully human emotions. This is one person with two natures, fully and completely. Everything that makes God, God. Everything that makes man, man, in one person. The divine nature doesn't blend with the human nature. It doesn't deify the human nature. The divine nature doesn't lose any of its divinity. The human nature doesn't lose any of its humanity. They retain everything that makes God, God. Everything that makes a man, man. We find both of those completely in one person. They don't mix together to make some new, mix, some, some new nature. This isn't like vanilla and chocolate coming to make milk chocolate. The fullness, 100% God, 100% man. I'm no math expert, but I'm pretty sure that's supposed to make 50-50. It doesn't. It makes 100% and 100%. And one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet at the same time, they're inseparably united. They remain so today. There's no analogy. Again, I say there's nothing like it in all the earth. And now if we're not careful, 
There's any number of heresies. That's why I tell you I tremble before I stand up and say this because there's so many times that my mouth gets going so much faster than my head. I don't stick to my notes. I was looking this morning. You know, there's this cord that comes from my mic to my pack. I wish sometimes I could just pinch it off like you do a water hose because I knew I said something. I wish y'all wouldn't hear me say it, but my hand doesn't work that fast and the cord doesn't work that way. But there are any number of heresies that we can trickle into, and the one that I struggle with the most is called Nestorianism. It's the idea that Jesus is two people rather than one person with two natures. Like we have this idea that within Jesus Christ, there are these two beings, these two people, and they're kind of like battling it out for control. And like all of a sudden, here comes Jesus the man, and he's coming to cook and eat some fish. And then all of a sudden, God the son nudges him out of the way, and he says, no, I need to jump in here and raise this dead man to life. As if there's two distinct people, but that's not the picture we see in Scripture, is it? What did Jesus say? I am. Not we are. Oh, there were times when he talked about we. It was when he was talking about the triune God. We were talking about himself with the Father and the Spirit. But when Jesus Christ talked about himself, it was always I am. These are not two persons. This is one person with two natures. And so it is accurate then for us to conclude that anything that Jesus did in his divine nature and anything that Jesus did in his human nature, the whole person of Jesus Christ did. We don't need to divide him. We can't divide him. That's why we can say accurately that the Son of God has experienced death. Now, before you jump up and scream, I know God cannot die, but in his union with humanity, Jesus Christ can relate to us in death. The Son of God knows what it's like to be tempted. Oh, but God can't be tempted. But in his union with humanity, he has endured all manner of temptation. I'm exhausted. What time is it? Here's why this Christology matters, okay? When Peter stood with Jesus after the resurrection, after he had cooked breakfast for his friends, Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was greatly distressed by this. He, he wasn't just distressed because he knew how badly he had failed Jesus in denying him three times on the night of his arrest. Peter was distressed because Jesus kept asking him the question. So that finally he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus does know everything. Just as he knew that Nathanael was sitting under a fig tree long before he ever saw or met him. Just as John says in John 2, 24 through 25, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is God and God knows all things. God learns nothing. But Jesus is also man, and man must grow in knowledge. Man does learn things. That's why we find Jesus is a boy. We read these words, Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is how Jesus could truthfully say that he did not know who touched him when the woman with the bleeding problem pressed through the great crowd. This is how Jesus Christ, the person, the person, Jesus Christ, our Lord, can say that he does not know the time of his return. This isn't a lie. This isn't magic. This isn't a parlor trick. It's a mystery. According to Jesus' fully human nature, he did not know. According to his divine nature, the person of Jesus Christ knew completely, and that's as far as we can go. That's the end of what we can say with absolute certainty about what's happening here. Just as Jesus can be a helpless baby, being held and nursed at the breast of his mother, at the very same time, he can be holding up the entire universe, including the woman that is there nursing, nursing him, caring for him. 
That's how he can say with absolute certainty that I do not know the day or the time that I will come while at the same time being the very source of all knowledge. Stand in awe, dear friends. There is no one like our Lord. And it was only he that can save us. It's only he that could fulfill all righteousness. It's only he that could die as a suitable substitute. It's only he that then could ascend to the right hand of the Father and intercede on our behalf. That's why he can look to you in your sorrow, in your temptation, in your loss, in your suffering, in your hurting, in your abandonment, in your false accusations. He can look to you in the middle of whatever you're going through and he says, I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly what that feels like. I have wept like you have wept. I've been abandoned the way you have been abandoned. I've bled the way you have bled. I know exactly what this looks like. I know exactly what you're going through. And guess what? I can actually do something about it. Because I'm also the God of the universe. There is no end to my power. There is no end to my justice. There is no end to my might. I'm coming back, and I'm going to do something about all these things that torment you today. Only Jesus Christ, our Lord, could say such a thing. So in light of this, Jesus is not lying when he says, I don't know. He says, I don't know. He says, because I don't know, you don't need to know. And because you don't need to know, I'm not going to give you any signs. There will be signs before the fall of the temple. There will not be signs before the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is why we find in Matthew's parallel of this morning's text that he compares it to the days of Noah. People just be going about their everyday business. They're going to be eating, they're going to be drinking, they're going to be marrying, they're going to be giving their daughters in marriage, they're going to be going to work. He says this, Matthew 24, 39, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two, men will be, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Now some men have taken this and they've used it as a evidence for some kind of secret rapture, you know, the whole left behind stuff. There'll be two people there, and then the believer will be taken out, and the non-believer will be left. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about the flood. Who got swept away in the flood? Everyone other than the family of Noah. This is an act of judgment. God's judgment upon sinful humanity. They were the ones that were swept away in the wrath of God on that day. These people thought that surely life was going to continue as it always has. They looked around them. Men look around them today, and they think, well, maybe Jesus is never coming back. Maybe he's not coming back for another thousand years. Maybe he was just mistaken about saying that he was coming back. Maybe he already came back, but he's only coming back in, in spirit. And so now it's up to us to make the kingdom of God here and now. So they go about their ordinary business. They go about everyday life. But he says it's going to come like a thief in the night. That's what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. That the people will be looking around them. They'll be saying that there is peace and security, and then suddenly destruction will come upon them. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Security. This world's always going to continue just as it is, so I might as well store up all my treasures right here on earth. This world is always going to continue like it is, so I might as well make my five and ten and thirty-year plan and lay that out before me. Assuming things will always go just as they have. Again, he compares it to a thief at night, that no one's going to have a clue when that day comes. We do not come, it do not have a clue whether it's going to come in the middle of the night when the rooster crows, perhaps in the morning. We don't see any evidence here. We don't see him talking about some great cataclysm that's coming before this. We don't see him talking about undeniable signs and signals. He says it's going to come upon, them, come upon you when you least expect it. That those people who are left unprepared, they will be swept away in the flood of God's judgment. 
So the question before us is the same as the question that was before us last week. What kind of people then should we be? How do we live in light of this truth? If Jesus Christ is coming back, if we don't know the hour when he's coming back, how should we live? What type of people should we be? Verse 33 in this morning's text. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come and suddenly find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You think Jesus is trying to make a point here? I listened to a lot of sermons this week. Very few of them went into Christology like that. Almost all of them zeroed in on this, and rightly so. Because listen to what Jesus says. Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Don't get caught asleep. Stay awake. Think that repetition means something? Stay awake. Be on guard. Don't get caught asleep. In light of the certainty of Jesus Christ's return, and I would remind you that God has fixed that day. He does say that the Father knows. He says no one knows, not the angels, not the Son, but only the Father. Because the Father has fixed that day before the beginning of time. That when the last of the saints is gathered in, at that time appointed by him, that Jesus Christ is coming back. God has fixed that day. Now, we don't have time to unpack everything that comes on that day, especially now as I look at my watch. But you listen to the text that David read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 5. Go back just a little before that, the first half or the second half of 1 Thessalonians 4. That there's going to be that day when that trumpet sounds and we see Jesus Christ coming with his holy angels. No longer like an innocent babe, a humble child. We'll see him coming as a mighty warrior, the powerful, glorious God of the universe. We see him descending in all power as the trumpet sounds and the angels come with him and the dead shall rise. This is the resurrection. Daniel 12 tells us that some will be raised to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That immediately then there's that great day of judgment. Go read 2 Thessalonians 1. Read Matthew 25. Read Revelation 20. You see all the pictures of this great day of judgment. This is not a time for a defense. This is not a time to call counsel over. He's going to open the books of life. He's going to show the books of the works of this world. He's going to show you everything that you have done. He's going to reveal to the world everything that you've done, things that you didn't even know yourself, things that you thought were acts of righteousness. You will find out the selfishness and the pride and the sin and the degradation that was involved in those things that you counted as your crowning achievement. He will open up this book and show you, no, that was sin. That was sin. And were it not for Jesus Christ, were it not for that other book, the book of life, everyone would be cast into hell for all eternity. There will be no defense. There will be no argument. There will be no back talking. There will be no hiding on that day. But there is this other book. This other book will be opened up. And from within that, we will find that there's men whose names have been written since before the foundation of the world. Those who God foreknew, those he predestined. Didn't just predestine them for salvation, predestined them that they would be conformed to the image of his son. So at that moment, what we recognize is as we see Jesus Christ, we become like he is. No longer lowly, no longer humble, no longer weak and tired, no longer changing. No longer wasting away, no longer sinful, but new, glorious, imperishable bodies. Then that moment we will be like he is, that we will be saved. There's going to be evidence of this. There's going to be evidence that our name was written in this other book because of the works that are carried out in righteousness in this lifetime. There will be acts of righteousness, all to the glory of God, never to the glory of man, never to the glory of us. This isn't going to be the highlight reel of Josh. This is going to be all the things that I did in my flesh and the works that Jesus Christ carried out in his spirit. And those things will be evidence that I am his. And when that day comes and that trumpet sounds and the angels descend and Jesus Christ comes, there will be no doubt. There will be no secret. There will be no hiddenness like a flash of lightning. Every man will know what is happening. 
And on that day, only those that are his will be welcomed into their master's joy. And all the rest, they will be cast out like worthless servants into a place where there is crying and the gnashing of teeth. And dear friends, we must remember that because this day is promised, every time we come to a scripture like this where we are reminded of the promise that Jesus Christ is coming back, while at the very same time we're reminded, but you don't know when that day will come, you must be reminded that this is a call to stay awake, to stay on guard, to watch yourself. Again, he says it's like a master going on a journey. This poor servant didn't know when he was coming back. It would have been nice if he told him, wouldn't it? He could have taken a nap and then just woke up just hours before the master came back. But he didn't. He said, you're going to stay up all night. All four watches of the night, you're going to stay up because you have no clue when I'm coming back. So you must, must watch out. Listen to the way in Luke's parallel, he defines this watching out. He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. It's like a trap. You don't see it, and next thing you know, you've been snatched up by it. But he says, be sure that you're not weighed down by dissipation. You know what that word means? It means to squander. It means to waste away. In Matthew's gospel down in chapter 25, this is where he talks about the parable of the talents. Don't waste, don't squander those opportunities, those resources that have been given to you by God. Don't waste this life that he has given you. Don't waste all that God has entrusted to you in light of the fact that he is returning and you will answer to him for everything that you have done in this life. Don't get weighed down by drunkenness. You don't know the real problem with being drunk? Apart from the fact that God says don't do it. It causes men to let their guard down. It's the opposite of being awake. That's why people drink, right? To let their guard down. To loosen themselves up. He says, don't be drunk. You don't want to be loose. You want to be on guard. You want to be awake. You want to be alert. I picture drunken people. I've been around enough drunk people. I have girls cover years. I've been drunk myself. Drunk people are sloppy. And I get this picture of Satan the lion roaming around like a bunch of stumbling baby gazelles or like an injured deer of some sort. And we're stumbling around. He says, now is the time to pounce. You'll have thoughts that you hadn't otherwise had. You'll do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. So he says, watch out that you don't waste this life. Watch out that you don't walk in drunkenness. And again, the third issue, he says that you're not in dissipation or drunkenness or the cares of this life. Everyone knows it's a sin to be drunk. Everyone knows it's a sin to waste your life but it's the sneakiness of the cares of this life. Like the seeds that are sown in thorny soil. The cares of this life, they choke us out. The enticement of riches. I think that's God's cue that I'm done. Let's pray. Father God, we so desperately need to heed these words. We so desperately need to be changed. We so desperately need the working of your spirit to keep us awake, to keep us alert, to keep us on guard. Help us to heed those words. Help us to cling to the person of your son, Jesus Christ, to see in him our only hope, to long for that day of his return, and to fight against every temptation of this world to let our guard down. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.